Hi, thanks for joining our podcast at Renew Church OC, a church for imperfect people only. We have a special announcement. A small crew from our church and I co-authored a children's book series and journals that help people find their calling with profits going to the foster community. Our website just launched and we would love for you to take a look and do some Christmas shopping. I dropped our link and a special promo code for our listeners in the description section. This month, all eyes were on the election as people were hanging their hopes and nightmares on Trump or Biden. And 2020 has been defined by these waves of fears pulling at our attention, whether it's the pandemic, racial injustice, or Kobe dying. Yeah, I'm still hung up on that. Our sermon series, Refocus, is about putting our eyes back on Jesus instead of being fixated on these external events. I hope that as you focus on Jesus and the gospel again, you'll see the world through his eyes. Enjoy the sermon. All right, when I think about our intro question, I think about the times where I've doubted my own faith and salvation. Over many years, I became Christian when I was four, but I remember times of desert, um, Christianese for for saying when we feel dif- uh, distance from God, like we pray and he's not really answering us, or we go to church, but we don't really feel his presence. You know, there's times of extended desert where I just feel like, man, am I really saved? Thankfully, going through seminary, I've learned through ancient fathers of the faith that this is really a part of the spiritual journey. But also addiction addiction and sin has caused me to doubt my faith and salvation. If I'm really saved, should I still be um, a recovering sex addict when it comes to pornography? Like, why am I still struggling with this? Or other times, sin surprises us. We didn't know we were capable of something, and we hurt someone deeply, and we question our salvation. Or when bad things happen to us, we didn't expect someone we love to be diagnosed with cancer. We didn't expect to lose our job over the pandemic. We didn't expect God to inflict us with the disease. Oftentimes I hear people doubt their salvation during those times. Or we've just been apathetic for a long time. You know, we we feel like we don't really care anymore about God or our faith. We haven't gone to church for months until it went online and we could do it in a couple clicks. I'm glad you're here, by the way. Um, Or we wrestle with depression and anxiety and we're like, someone who's safe, should they have this mental illness? Should we, uh, should someone who, who saved be in such despair or feel uh, bipolar or or wrestle with these kinds of um, mental illnesses? Failure. Or when things are going well, we can actually doubt our salvation and it's a slow, it's a slow loss, slow burn where we just realize after a few years of everything going our way that we're not really dependent on God anymore and we feel like we don't really need him. Well, we all will, will doubt our salvation, but when we doubt, I want to help you focus on the right thing to answer that doubt. Right, so, so when we doubt, how do we get the answer for whether we're saved or not? Because when we focus on the wrong thing, we might think that we're Christian and actually not be Christian, 
or we might think that we're not Christian and actually be Christian. And both are really um, unhelpful for our Christian faith, right? The great deception is that we're a goat when we thought we were a sheep. That's the worst case scenario. And when we answer our doubt in the wrong way, it might lead us there. Or we might, we're Christian, but we believe we're not. And then we continue to reside in infancy for years, to walk in our faith with deep insecurity, unable to mature and look outside of us. So what are the wrong places to put our focus when we doubt? It's that list I just gave you. The wrong focus, the wrong things is thinking that a desert, an addiction, a sin, bad things happening, apathy, depression, failure is consequential in our salvation. Allowing our our doubts to be defined and to be answered by how we feel in our distance or intimacy with the Lord and how... um, in how circumstances are going our way or not is detrimental. So what do we focus on? Well, I'm going to give you three concepts uh, for assurance of salvation, right? How Our assurance should come through three concepts that in the end will come together. And these concepts, if you simplify it, is the gospel, is the sinner's prayer, is, the, is knowing God personally, the booklet. Those are all really accurate ways to understand salvation. But I think we're used to simplifying it so that it's palatable. And although it's true, it can be shallow. I'm hoping that this sermon through concepts that you might not have wrestled with or even heard of will take what you know of the gospel and deepen it a mile down so that you'll be able to withstand your doubts in a totally different way, right? If you have a deep understanding of salvation, the the doubts uh, that are shallow won't affect you anymore. Think about an oak tree or the foundation of a tall building. The deeper it gets, the more sustainable that tree or that building in is. Okay, so I'm going to go through three concepts again. And I just want to warn you that this is a pretty academic and heady sermon I'm, I'm going to go for your minds today. And if you're not paying attention, if you miss one of these points, it's going to be really hard for you to get kind of the whole conclusion of my sermon because it relies on these points coming together. If you do get it, if you're willing to put down your phone and to listen to the sermon on your other screen, the next time you have a doubt, I believe that you'll be able to focus on the right thing for the right answer. You'll be able to tackle your doubts. Isn't that a pretty audacious promise? We're going to have a next season of doubt. And this will give you assurance of salvation in a new way. And I think it will re, it will deepen your very understanding of the gospel. Three concepts for assurance of salvation. The first one is representation. And as you think about this, I want to go back to Adam and Eve. Uh, That's one of the greatest moments of representation in the Bible. Adam and Eve lived in the garden on the next slide. And when they fell, 
um, they were separated from God. At first, they were walking with the Lord in the coolness of the day. They take hikes with Jesus. They saw him face to face. They held hands with God. The intimacy was right in front of them. Um, but when they fell, when they ate the forbidden fruit, what they're saying and what they were tempted with is, do you want to be like God? And that's the core of sin, saying, I want to be God instead of allowing God to be God. And when we do that, we have separation from God. First and foremost, we see God walking into the garden and ask, where are you? As Adam and Eve were hiding from him. And God isn't asking, where are you locationally? He's asking, where are you relationally? That there's this grief and sadness in the question. You know, it's, it's like when you sit across the table uh, with, your, with your daughter or your son. And you haven't talked for, for weeks. Or you know that they're mad at you for something. And you say, where are you? That even though you're here, you're miles apart. It's like sitting on the couch with your husband or your wife, your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And saying, where are you? Because even though they're four feet away, relationally, they've, they're in a totally different place. When they fell, there's also separation from each other. Adam and Eve were naked, which wasn't just physical. It was physical, but it represented vulnerability and nakedness emotionally. Uh, being able to be totally trusting of another person, believing they won't hurt you and, and, and fully expose your heart, uh, your mind, your trust. And then once the fall came, once they sinned against God, there wasn't just separation from God, but there was separation with each other. They put on clothes. They started hurting each other. They deceived one another. The people I love most, I hurt most deeply as well. Right? It doesn't, we don't just hurt our enemies. We, we hurt our families, our children, our friends. So we're living in that consequence as well. Lastly, there's a separation from the earth. The earth used to work in harmony with humanity. It would provide all of our needs easily and quickly so that we didn't have to worry about survival. We can invent. We could go on ventures. We can create. But after Adam and Eve fell, the, the earth worked against them. And it became difficult to sustain their very lives. But Adam and Eve's sin wasn't just um, consequential in their life. It was a con there was consequence in all of our lives. In the next slide, it says, because of Adam's sin, we were, we were born with a sinful nature. This was the greatest consequence of Adam's sin is that everyone after him, which includes us, now have a sinful nature. What is that? The sin nature is that part of human beings that impales us to commit sin. The Bible teaches that we have a human nature. Not only do we commit sin, but it is our nature to do so. From compellingtruth.org, right? Great, great resource. Um, I already knew this. I was just finding someone who could word it correctly and be authoritative on the topic. No, but seriously though, when we think about Adam's sin, the greatest consequence was that our hearts, instead of being turned towards God at birth and wanting to please him and for him to rule and reign in our life, instead are turned towards ourself, that we want to be God. We're born with that nature. And out of that nature, we sin against him. That's what 
Adam gave the rest of humanity this sinful nature. But why am I affected by Adam's sin? It doesn't seem fair, right? Like Erwin sitting next to Kenan, if he pulled out a pen and started stabbing him in the arm, you know, it's like, why would I go to jail for that? Or whatever, right? It, it should be Erwin's, it's his fault. He should suffer the consequences for it. But instead, we're all affected by Adam's sin. We're, we're born into the world, separated from God, separated from each other, and working to survive. That doesn't seem fair. Well, it doesn't seem fair because we don't understand representation, which is the first word and concept I'm trying to communicate. Why am I affected by Adam's sin? When Adam sinned, he represented humanity in rebelling against God. In Adam, we all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says, Death came through a man. In Adam, all died. Again, doesn't seem fair. But what, what the Bible is saying and what truth, the truth that resides is that when someone can represent us so that in his decision, we've all decided that as well. When Adam rebelled against God, we all rebelled against God. Now think about representation um, in the way that we experience it. So I, we have a congressional leader, a congressman for Fullerton, where I reside. When he goes to Congress and he casts his vote on different policy changes and laws, what happens? He's representing us, right? It's like our whole district voted for that one policy. Even though I didn't vote for it, he's representing us in voting. And all of us live in the consequence of those laws being enacted. In the same way, um, if our president and Congress declared war on another country, I didn't go to that country and say, I declare war on you. But I might get drafted into the military, have to pick up a gun and start fighting for my country because he, in his authority, in his stewardship, represents all of the United States. Me, you, everyone here, as he's making those decisions. Adam had that kind of authority over humanity. And in our individualistic world, we don't get it, but... We experience it every day in governance. We experience it in church. Me and the leadership team make decisions all the time that affect all of us, right? When I wrote a contract for this location, uh, I'm writing it on behalf of the whole church. So in the same way, when Adam sinned, he represented humanity in rebelling against God. In Adam, we all sinned. Death came through one man. In Adam, all died. Everyone get that? First concept, representation. Second concept is covenant. What does a covenant look like and mean? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 4, this is one of the most um, important covenants in humanity. God's covenant with Abraham. In, in chapter 12, verse 1, God said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Adam went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Now, this is a big deal because out of Adam came all of 
the Israelites. Okay, so all of the Old Testament Israelite stories came from this one man and his wife. They're all his descendants. And that's important because during this time, God is picking a people group who will reinstate Eden, right? And Eden, when we started, it's like the covenant was, you'll be my God and we'll be your people instead of I wanting to, me wanting to be God. And that's the covenant that he's entering into with Abram, with Abraham. You be my people. You and your descendants will be my people on this earth when everyone else is worshiping themselves and expressions of themselves carved out in idols. But you will worship me and I will be your God. And your people, your, your people, your lineage will do the same. And I will give you a people, I will give you a land. And then in Genesis 15, he exemplifies this covenant. Okay, and there's this graphic um, illustration or event in which God and Abraham are talking again. And Abraham's saying, okay, you're promising me a land and possessions and lots of descendants as numerable as the stars in the sky, as a f- land as far as the eye can see, right? But I have no kids. Am I supposed to be giving all of these possessions to one of my employees or servants? And then God reinstates, no, you will have a son. And and then it says, Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him righteousness, okay? And then they did a ceremony that really helps us understand covenant, our second word. He tells Abraham to cut in half all these animals, like a cow and a goat, throw some dead birds on the floor and make an aisle, right? The aisle of death. And God was going to come down as a torch in the middle of the aisle and Abraham would meet him there as well. And in this aisle of severed animals split in half, right? So the cow heads here, the cow's rear is there and you're opening up these animals so that its intestines, its uh, guts and its blood are splattered across uh, this aisle. You walk through it and... um, Abraham and God makes this promise. He'll be his people and God will be their God. And this is an ancient ritual that kings participated in that now Abraham is doing with the Lord. And why all this gut and gore, right? It's because you're saying that I, if I break this promise to you, um, the punishment is death. And you're standing in the middle of death as you're making this promise. It's like the unbreakable vow, Uh, that Snape made, right? Like, if you break this uh, promise, you will die. Now, Megan and Tim are getting married, Danelle and Jason. And I'm just thinking, wouldn't it be beautiful if they cut all these animals in half, you know, and Danielle, Megan walk down this aisle getting their uh, white dress a little bloodied. But I feel like everyone would take it more seriously. You know, the idea of marriage, the marriage covenant actually comes out of this biblical idea of covenant, okay? So this is the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is the covenant that Abraham made with God. And when you look at the Old Testament, it is so compelling because over hundreds of years, over dozens of generations, the people of Israel in trouble, in famine, in uh, slavery to other countries would in exile, would call upon this covenant 
that their forefather Abraham made with the Lord. And they would say, God, remember, remember this, this covenant, this promise that you made with your servant Abraham and rescue us. And God would. God was faithful to his covenant throughout the course of Israel's history. Can you imagine someone being that faithful, not just to the man that he made the covenant with, but to generations of people causing massive world events to keep that covenant? But Israel would not keep their covenant with the Lord. Again and again, they worshiped idols. Again and again, they said, you're not my God. This thing I carved out of my hands is. And they would throw a baby into fire in order to please that God. And the way that God described this through the prophets was saying it, it was like, it's like being cheated on. It's like your wife or your husband who shared a bed with you, who raised children with you, going after another man or another woman. You know, another prophet says, uh, like animals know their master, like a dog will come to you when you come home and, and, uh, and know that you own them. A, a cow knows their master, but my own people don't know me. Like dogs and cattle have a better recognition of their owner than Israel did of their God. There was this deep grief throughout uh, the Old Testament of this God who faithfully cut kept his covenant and a people even staring death down breaking theirs third concept incarnation so jesus comes and when we try to understand who jesus is first he always and eternally is god in nature Right? Nature is this idea of something's essence. So we share human nature. This is a nature, an essence, that makes us all human. Right? Um, you could say inanimate objects have nature as well. So, um, you know, that's a drum set. I could see hundreds of drum sets and know that's a drum set because of its nature. Cat has a nature or essence of a cat. So anyways, Jesus always had the nature of God. All-powerful, eternal, omniscient, um, ever-present, omnipresent. But when he and and we refer to him in that state as the logos, right? The Word of God in in John chapter one. And then he comes to Earth, was birthed out of Mary, and he, at that point he took on human nature. Okay, he became human, and he doesn't just inhabit a body. Uh, like a demon would. Like if a demon takes over someone, they don't take on the nature of a human. They're just like possessing a body. Jesus doesn't just possess a body when he comes to earth. He takes on our essence and our nature. And this is called incarnation. So Jesus is fully man and fully divine. Um, this is because humanity, the nature of humanity and the nature of divinity is not uh, contradictory. And therefore, you can have both. Okay, here's where all three concepts come together. Are you ready? Here's where incarnation, covenant, and representation come together. Jesus takes on human nature, incarnation, to represent us in a covenant with God. 
Jesus takes on human nature to represent us in a covenant with God. For death came through one man, Adam. The resurrection of death comes through a man, Jesus. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so just like Adam represented all of humanity when he sinned, Jesus, when he dies on the cross and resurrects, and in his uh, life, he also invites us to be represented by him. He represents us. And he's the one, Jesus, is actually making the covenant with God and keeping the covenant on our behalf. You see, we could never keep that covenant with God. None of us could, the, and David couldn't, and Solomon couldn't. I mean, they're like our very best. They couldn't keep that perfect, perfect covenant with God. So Jesus takes on our humanity in order to represent us so that in him, we can have an unbreakable covenant with the Father. I think a lot of how we understand the Christian faith isn't being in Christ and represented by Christ, but it's it's that we're trying to make a covenant with God, right? Like I decided to ask for forgiveness and follow Jesus. And 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 it's that decision, and that decision is the covenant. But what happens when I stop following Jesus? What happens when I forget to ask for forgiveness a few times? Am I breaking that covenant? And I've seen a lot of Christians carry their salvation on their shoulders. Like they know it's because Jesus died for them, but they don't believe or understand or live out that not only does Jesus die in order to bring them into covenant, that Jesus himself is keeping the covenant with the Father and he's representing us as he keeps it. If you look at the last slide, uh, the next slide, are you in Christ? Have you trusted him to represent you in making and keeping the covenant with God the Father. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? Because Jesus dies, because all of us breaks the covenant, humanity has broken their covenant with the Lord, and the consequence is death. So when Jesus takes on humanity, a great purpose behind that is to represent us. He you can't represent something that you are not. Jesus, in his divinity, cannot represent humanity. But as he becomes human, he takes that punishment for us. That, that death that was displayed between Adam and, and God as a consequence for covenant breaking, he dies. And when we're in Christ, when he represents us, you have died because you're in him. But then your life is in him as well, is hidden, is protected, is in Jesus. Paul and Timothy um, in, in Philippians are greeting the church. And he, he says, servants of Jesus Christ, all to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. I mean, this is how Peter greets, greets his church. And I remember just reading In Christ, uh, which is a 
commonplace in Paul's language just didn't mean nothing. Like, I just skipped over it. But it has such deep and rich meaning. So, am I in Christ? Have I trusted Him to represent me in making and keeping the covenant with God the Father? Or am I living a Christian faith where I'm trying to keep the covenant with God? And here's a chart that I think helps you examine um, the difference, right? When, when the covenant, when the covenant is between Jesus uh, representing humili- humanity and God. He's making the covenant on our behalf. He's representing us. Um, When I doubt my salvation, I look to Christ. I don't look inward. I don't look at how I feel, how many sins I've committed, how many good deeds I did, how close or far away I I feel from God. No, I look at Jesus because he's the one keeping this covenant. And all I'm asking is, am I in him and am I trusting him? to keep this covenant? Am I asking Jesus to represent me in death and life? Jesus lived this perfect life, right? He died on our behalf, but he lives a fully perfect life, submitting to the Father, being dependent on the Father, being faultless and righteous. And when I'm in Jesus, I'm in this covenant-keeping relationship with the Lord, and he's representing me in his righteousness. And therefore, I have confidence and peace that when God looks at me, he's looking at his son. He's looking at someone who's perfect and righteous, who he's smiling on and has favor. He's looking at Jesus and I am in Jesus. If God just looks at me directly, (laughs) insecurity, anxiety, right? Like, don't you have a hard time approaching the Lord in prayer Primarily because you're just like, ah, oh, so much sin in my life. And it's not that we don't deal with that and repent of it and ask Jesus to forgive us. But it's, it's that when, Jesus, when we approach the Lord, he's looking at Christ because we are in Christ. And lastly, in Christ, we experience forgiveness and acceptance instead of shame and performance. If you have this fundamental volatility in how you perceive your relationship with Jesus, it's probably because it's in you. You're trying to keep the covenant. So when you fail, you're ashamed. You're running. You feel like the worst Christian. And when you're performing well, right, you feel super close to God and you're sure you're saved. Well, that's nice until you sin again. And by the way, even when you're doing that well, you're probably judging the people around you for not doing it. You know, the problem with the Pharisees is that they were trying to keep the covenant. The covenant in their mind was between them and God. And so they're doing all these rules and regulations and trying to force other people to do it the same way. But the reason why Jesus condemns them is because they can't keep the covenant perfectly. They're not even keeping the essence of the Torah, which is go to God for forgiveness and grace. That's why you're killing animals every every year or so. Because because in the Torah is you're not going to be able to keep it. So go kill that animal, which is the Lamb of God, which is Jesus. And when Jesus is presenting himself to them, they're saying, no, I'll keep it. 
Don't we have friends like that? Can't we be like that sometimes? Where we feel like we're good enough. Where we feel like we live the ethical life. I have some agnostic friends who say, hey, I don't need Christ. I will stand before God and have him evaluate my life. I believe I've been good enough, right? Or the, or the strong Christian can say that too. They live a lifestyle where they don't need Jesus because they can lean on their Christian resume, on their uh, good works, on, the way, on their titles. But when we stand before the Lord, He's like, yeah, you might be better than the guy next to you. But Jesus looks at him and says, or her, and says, have you lusted? Because you've committed adultery. You want to keep my perfect standard? It's not really the Torah. The Torah was teaching you how to run a nation and get forgiveness and live in an ethical society. My perfect law is you you look at a woman lustfully and you're an adulterer. You call someone a fool and you should go to hell. And uh, you hate someone and you're angry with them and, and, you're, and it's the equivalent of murder. That's what perfection looks like. Even your thoughts have to be perfect. You want to keep the covenant. That's what it looks like. Or you could be in me. You could have me keep the covenant because I did it perfectly. And I did it for you. Um, you know, when I think about our relationship with the Lord and the times where we doubt, I hope that you would look at Jesus and know that it was never about you trying to keep a covenant with the Lord. But you can rest and reside in Him. You can feel confident in Him. He will not, Jesus will not break the covenant with the Father. I, I hope that you can evaluate whether you've trusted Jesus. Um, and, and lean on that. And this morning, I also want to give you an opportunity to trust the Lord. Maybe you've been Christian a long time, but you realize, oh, actually, I'm trying to keep my relationship with the Lord. It's kind of been based on my performance and how well I do. Um, would you this morning say, I want to be in you, Jesus. I want you to represent me in making a covenant with the Lord. Or maybe you're hearing the sermon and you're trying to understand what Christianity is about. Um, you're not sure. Well, this is it. Would you trust Jesus to forgive you and to represent you before the Father? To forgive you of your sin and to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Regardless of it, if you've been a Christian for 10 years or if this is your first time hearing about it, I would love to give you an opportunity to pray and to invite Jesus to represent you. Would you repeat after me and, and say these words in your heart or out loud if it expresses uh, what, what you desire? God, I, I know I'm a sinner. I've done evil in your eyes. And that I can't keep my promise uh, with you. And so I pray that I would be in Christ. 
I pray, Jesus, that you would represent me in dying for my sins and in living a perfect life with the Father. I give my heart to you, um, and I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen.